here, and we are working through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible on your phone or with you physically, you can turn to it. Um, uh, uh, if you don't, don't worry about it. Uh, we'll, we'll read all the relevant stuff there. But while you're getting there, i got a couple things for you. First of all, um, uh, there's a passage in, uh, I think it's in the book of Romans. Romans. Um, it, it says, says to give honor where honor is due. And, and uh, I, know I know they probably, probably hate it. it. But uh, every, every single time, time my in-laws come here, I want to point out and acknowledge that here, here that's, that's why I'm wearing uh, one of my Missouri shirts. You can't read it. It says Branson, the Vegas of the Midwest. Uh, it's, it's, it's what would happen if AARP started their own Vegas. It's Branson, and it's awesome. And they're from that area. And uh, I just want to acknowledge them because Scripture says we give honor where honor is due, and for decades... They, they faithfully, faithfully served uh, their, their God, God and the local church. church. And, and, uh, 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 and I, I know that there will be a line of people waiting to thank them for their faithfulness in proclaiming Jesus. And so uh, thank you uh, for continuing to faithfully serve Jesus. And um, can we give them a round of applause just for... Because we did this first service, but is Aaron around? Linda, you wanna you wanna guilt him into coming up here uh, and find him? Well, those of you who don't know, if, if you're kind of new to being around here, oh, here he is! Yeah! I was fixing the live stream. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron says this morning he comes in and he goes, he goes, oh, and I thought I could just come and relax this morning. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who don't know, Aaron uh, left in August to go start a, Georgia, a job at George Fox um, in their worship and music department, and, and super excited. And so this team that was here this morning, and we'll be back in a little bit, is some of his students. And so first of all, incredibly thankful for your graciousness. Um, I know it's a drive for you. I know that for your students, it's a long drive. It's earlier than college students should have to get up to come down here on a Sunday morning in the rain, driving down from Newburgh. And so, so I appreciate it. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and we miss you, man. We miss you. Uh, six years uh, serving here. And um, uh, if you don't know this, one of Aaron's favorite things in the whole world is awkwardness. <laughs> like it just makes his heart go pitter patter. So on behalf of the whole church, we're going to take a little moment. <laughs> Oh, you're besting for too long. <laughs> We're just going to wait here. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. You get it. Man, if you, if you see him after service, give him a hug, high five, whatever, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you're joining us online, uh, reach out to him on Facebook or Instagram. Just tell him that uh, we missed him. We're glad for what God's doing through him at George Fox and being able to invest in uh, a new generation of leaders and worship pastors. Um, as you saw in the video next week, Jason Tukarczyk, um, our new worship pastor, is going to be joining us uh, October 31st. is going to be his first Sunday. Now, i got to let you down early so that you don't come and, 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 and feel like a bait and switch. Uh, we wanted to be as generous to him as possible and like give him actually a chance at succeeding here because I don't know if you know this, but you people are scary. And so 
uh, he's actually just going to be here, but he's not going to be leading for a couple Sundays just so we can kind of get to know you and get to know the church. Um, but you'll get a chance to see him and meet his um, wonderful family and him next week. So we're excited for that. Okay, here we go. We have so much to get to today, and we showed a video, and I did all this stuff, and I burned a lot of time, which does not mean that I'm going to preach any shorter. I just want you to know that we got a lot to do. So here we go. Matthew 21, verse 12. You ready? Let's read. It says this, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling the temple. Like we just went from zero to 60 in like 12 words, right? We're in a hurry now. He drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturning the temples of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribe saw the wonderful things that he was doing, and the children who were shouting in the temple, we, we say it this way, we say, Hosanna, they probably would have been saying something like, Hosanna, which, which literally means, save us, save us now to the son of David. They became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you not read? I, I just love Jesus' like blunt honesty with the religious leaders because he's asking a bunch of people who've de de devoted their life to the study of God's word. And his question is, have you not read your Bible? Right? It says right there. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out to the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Okay, so um, we've been working through the book of Matthew. If you've been here before, you're, you're going to know how this works, okay? If you haven't, uh, join with us because this is going to be a chant. We're all going to learn by the end of the book of Matthew, okay? Matthew was a? Jew. Writing to a bunch of? Jews. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. It changes the way we read the book we have in front of us. Because a lot of times we approach it from our culture and from our perspective. And there's a lot of things we love about the story. That's why, even if today is your first Sunday at church, you have probably heard this story about Jesus going to the temple and overturning the tables. And it's good and it's great and it's good that, that Jesus gets mad about what's going on here. But... As people 2,000 years later trying to kind of eavesdrop in on the conversation that Matthew is having with a bunch of other Jews about who Jesus is, there's some things that we miss, right? So like this, right? We're reading here uh, about these money changers and that they were buying and selling in the temple. And we might come to this text and we might think, oh, well, that must have been something that they always did. But it wasn't. For the vast majority of the history of the temple, buying and selling, this, this actually really kind of essential industry of, of buying and selling, we'll talk about what it was in a minute, actually occurred outside the temple gates, occurred by the edges of the cities. Culturally, it was kind of seen like a necessary thing, but they separated the, the commerce of the temple or the commerce of of, of worship or the commerce of the, 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 the gathering, right? They separate that from the actual religious experience of engaging. Only just a couple years before Jesus comes into Jerusalem this time has it moved. The, the high priest, the high priest who actually is going to end up getting Jesus killed, his name's Caiaphas. He's actually the one who has it all moved into the temple, into the area, outer edge of the temple called the, the court of the Gentiles, 
right? And uh, historians tell us that he did it because it made him a lot of money. Because he could sell the opportunity to be squatted right in front of the temple, and he could sell it for a pretty penny. Because you see, um, if you've ever traveled, I'm sure a lot of you have gone to another country, one of the first things you have to do when you go to another country is you have to exchange your currency for local currency, right? When we take teams to Mexico, um, we, we always tell people, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can do it, but one of the ones we tell them is never exchange currency at the airport, they're just going to like subtly rob you at the airport, right? What we tell our people is when they go is to like actually just get money out of an ATM because then you have like a bank institution working with a bank institution. But, but what are you going to get charged? You're going to get charged an exchange fee. You know, if the exchange rate pesos to dollars is 20 to 1, they might give you eight and a, 18 and a half to 1 because they're, they're giving you a service. They're going to take some. And that's, that's fair and, and reasonable. But what was going on here was all of these people in what was called the Jewish diaspora, which is just kind of like the splatter. The Jewish people um, over the last 100 years had kind of splattered all over the Middle East. They come from distant lands, they come from other cultures, and, and they come to the temple. And the temple had its own type of currency. And so if you're going to engage in the practices of the temple that includes currency, you have to take your currency and you have to exchange it, right? Now, the exploitation that was happening here, the, the, the exchange rate was absurd. I mean, it was bonkers. It was ridiculous, right? But there's a detail here that's actually going to tell us something um, really beautiful about specifically what makes Jesus angry when he goes in the temple. And, and, and we read it, but you probably missed it. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about that one of the things that's the, the difference between a myth and the Gospels, right? He, he studied old writings. The difference between a myth and the Gospels was the details. Myths don't include, like, little details. And the Gospels, all the time, they include these like little things. And anytime you see like a specific detail, it should make you ask like, why does Matthew care? Right? So, so look at this. Look at verse 12. Those who were buying and selling in the temple, right? Halfway through, it says this. He overturned the tables of the money changers. Okay, so we understand that there's, there, I mean, they're robbing them blind there. But then it says this. And the seats of those who are selling doves. That's a weird detail. There was a lot of selling going on. There was a lot of exchanges going on. There was the currency exchange, which I forgot to mention was primarily those who were foreigners. Because if you lived there, you had the currency, and so it wasn't a big deal, right? But those who were coming from outside coming in, the exchange rate. But then it, this little detail. It doesn't say that he flipped the tables of all those who were selling sacrificial animals, it doesn't say that he flipped the tables of those selling doves and those selling grain and those selling lambs and those selling... He, he There's one detail that Matthew points out to us that he wants us to see that tells us something important about what Jesus is doing. The seats of those who were selling doves. Now, here's the thing. I know, I know, I know, I know because you guys are smart. Like, you guys are smart people. Right? I know that this morning when you were doing your quiet time reading through the book of Leviticus and trying to better understand the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus, I know that when you were reading that you saw this. Did you see the detail? Right? Here's the thing. Um, the book of Leviticus tells the people how they can interact with God, uh, it, it, having saved them out of Egypt, having freed them from their oppressors. 
And a lot of what's in the book of Leviticus comes to a culmination in the celebration of Passover. They're coming. You, you know the story. They, they, were, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God's going to free them, and he sends all the plagues, and then the last plague is the death of the firstborn. And, and the, the angel of death is going to come to every household in Egypt except those who sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and smear it over a doorpost, and then they're supposed to take the lamb and have this ornate Wonder, well, not at the time it wasn't ornate. It's was actually supposed to be in a hurry. But, the, but it turns into this really ornate and beautiful life-giving meal that they're supposed to celebrate as a family, finding protection under the blood of the lamb that's smeared over their doorpost. And God would pass over, and then God delivered them out to the promised land. Well, we, we, we come to the Passover, and they're supposed to memorialize that in doing the same thing. In coming to Jerusalem, taking a lamb, giving it to the priest, they sacrifice it. The blood, historians would tell us that the gutters would run red with the blood of lambs pouring off the hillside, right? And then they would take a portion of the meat home, and they would go home, and they'd celebrate this really beautiful and great meal. Here's, here's, the, here's the problem and a symbol of just how merciful and kind our God is. A lamb was an incredibly expensive sacrifice. I mean, mind-bogglingly expensive. Not only was it expensive to buy a lamb, and the exchange rate when you went to, when you went to Jerusalem was nuts. Historians will tell us that, um, uh, that even if you brought a lamb, that the priests would reject it so you had to buy their lamb, which turned out just to be the lamb that they just bought back from the previous guy that they said that was no good right? You'd come with your lamb, they'd say, eh, it's no good, but we'll buy it from you for 10% because, you know, it's no good, it's worthless, right? And they'd take it from you, they'd walk it around behind the counter, and the next fool who comes up, they go, well, we have a perfect spotless lamb right here, and they'd sell it to you for 10 times more, right? Not only was it expensive to buy a lamb, a lamb was an expensive sacrifice of an investment, because you know what a lamb becomes? Do you know it's biologically? Sheep. They become a sheep! Someone knew! Woo! I got real nervous. They become a sheep. And you know what sheep do? They make more lambs. And you know what sheep do? They produce wool. And then eventually when the time comes, you sacrifice the sheep or you kill the sheep and you eat the sheep. So, so not only are you expending the money to buy a lamb, you're giving up all this potential in the future. And so God knowing that not everyone would have the resources to be able to make that commitment every single Passover over and over and over again, he, he gives this exemption. It's Leviticus 5. He says that if you cannot afford a lamb, that you can give to doves two doves. You see, in God's mercy and kindness and grace, he gives like a sliding scale of pay that if you can't afford a lamb, you can give a dove. So why is it that Jesus flips over the doves? It's because it was the poorest of the poor. It was the offering of those who had the least and were most overlooked and most being taken advantage of. In fact, in fact, we can read in history, there's this guy, we don't know anything about him except for, um, we don't even know his name. They call him Rabbi, the son of Gamal, right? And he made an edict a couple decades before Jesus um, that for that one year, just one year, for one year, they had to cut the price of doves by 99%. So... Let's do some reverse math and do a little conversation about what they're charging, right? So let's say a dove costs you two bucks. I don't know how much it costs to buy a dove. They don't sell them on Amazon, okay? Um, but let's say it costs you two bucks, okay? Cost to market is $2, so you need two doves. So you have to buy four, $4 worth of doves. 
If they could cut the price 99%, it's not unreasonable to think that they were charging $4,000 for two doves. And Jesus comes in and he throws over the tables and the places that are facilitating exploitation of the foreigner and the poorest. And this is exactly what Jesus says. You, you, you see what Jesus says, the religious leaders, right? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now, a lot of you probably know that Jesus is quoting scripture when he says you shall, that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you may not know that the second half he's quoting another scripture. He's quoting Jeremiah 7. And, and, and to tell you that the religious leaders knew, um, knew their Bibles would be an understatement. In fact, in Jewish culture, you didn't have to recite a whole passage to elicit the meaning of the whole passage. It's why, remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting a part of Old Testament prophecy. And anybody who heard those words would have known the full extent of all that he was quoting. They would have known scripture that well. And so when Jesus says this word, they know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about Jeremiah 7. Let me read it to you. It says this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there these words and say, hear the word of the Lord, all of you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord, right? This, this is right in front of the temple. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not, look at this, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk with other, other gods to, the, to your own ruin. Then I will let you dwell in this place, the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house in the temple, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. That, that's the message of Passover, the celebration. That's the shouting. Remember the kids in the temple go, Hoshana, God is going to save us. He's going to deliver us. That you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, Jesus calls out the religious leaders and they know immediately. It's, it's what enrages them. And eventually, just a couple days later, they set out to kill him because, because he's calling them out. He's calling them out for utilizing, uh, um, utilizing the temple as a way of exploiting the most overlooked, the most undercared for, the most unwanted, the most oppressed. That in some crazy way of fate, the, 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 the celebration that they have of freedom from the oppressed has become a moment where the oppressed has now become the oppressor. That the slave 
amongst them has now become the one who is in bond, putting in bondage their brothers and sisters. And it makes Jesus angry. Any single time, anybody, no matter the title they carry, no matter the life that they live, anytime someone stands in the way of people coming to God, it makes God angry. It makes God angry. It's only painfully and disruptive and sadly ironic that the priests were the ones who'd become the obstacle because you see a job of a priest was to be the mediator who created the pathway between God and his people. And yet Jesus's accusation is they have actually become the obstacle, the barrier, and it makes Jesus mad. And we should be grateful that it makes him mad. And we, we should get angry when there are things that, that come between people experiencing the grace and freedom of God. It should make us mourn and lament that there is brokenness, that it has severed people from their relationship with God. And any obstacle that gets in the way of people coming to Jesus, except for Jesus himself, should make us sad and, and angry and hurt because it's the same things that make God sad and angry and hurt. And what's caused Jesus to go in and throw tables one of the other gospels tells us that he even comes with a whip, right? He didn't come to mess around. It makes him angry. But, but here's the thing I find in us. Here's the thing that I find in me. It's always easy to be angry about those people out there. Right? We, we can sit here with like a little bit of smugness and we can read Matthew and go, those religious leaders. How could, how could they exploit people in such a way? How could they oppress? How could they not understand the grace and mercy that God has shown them and use a, a celebration and a holiday to celebrate freedom and yet use it to oppress people? And so often, the brokenness and the darkness and the bondage that makes us mourn and makes us angry is all about those people out there. We can make a list, right? Here's a, here's a, in your workplace, if you don't like your job and you complain about your job, you know who you complain about? Your boss or your coworkers. Because the problem with your job is those people. They don't understand it. They're unethical. They don't know how to run it. They, they, don't, they don't take care of their employees. It's those people. The problem with your marriage? <laughs> Let's all be honest. The problem with your marriage is your spouse. If you didn't have a spouse, your marriage would be a lot better. <laughs> right? It's always them. The problem with your kids is them. The problem with your parents is them. The problem with our nation is those people. The problem with the world are those people. The problem in our community in the next generation is those people. But Matthew doesn't end his story there. And this is where it gets really awkward, okay? Look, look, look at verse 18. Matthew says this. Now, in the morning, okay, now this is, just so you know, this is why he doesn't end the story here. When Matthew makes transitions, he uses other phrases than this one. He wants us to see a continuity between these two stories, right? Jesus goes in and he confronts the religious leaders. This is his audience he's talking to. And then we're going to see here in this next story, there's a different audience he's talking to, and it's important, okay? Now in the morning, 
When he was returning to the city, see, he wants us to connect. He wants us to see that this is connected to what was going on. He being Jesus became hungry, not hangry, although it may look like it based on what he does. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all these things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. That's weird. Anybody else? Right? Like, I've told you this before, and I adamantly believe this. If you read the Gospels, if you follow Jesus, and you read throughout Jesus' life, and there aren't at least moments where you go, that's weird. You're either, like, not genuinely listening to what Jesus is saying, or you're not being honest with yourself. Here's the story we just heard. Jesus is walking back to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree. It doesn't have any figs on it. So he curses it and kills it right there. The disciples go, whoa, that's awesome. Can we do that? And Jesus says, well, if you have enough faith, you can do crazy stuff like this too. You can even take that mountain and chuck it into the sea. Wouldn't that be awesome? You can have miraculous powers too. Is that not weird? Let's look. You guys aren't as amazed as I am here, but we're going to look. It says this, that they were walking into Jerusalem. Now there's some geography that we need to understand to understand what's going on here because it changes the way we read the story. So Bethany is where Jesus spent the night. It's a town east of Jerusalem, a little bit east of Jerusalem. It's a little bit of a walk to Jerusalem. Um, but as you would walk to Jerusalem, you would come towards the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem sits on top of, they called it a mount or a mountain. We would call it a hill, Right? But they would call it a mountain, and it would sit, that's why a lot of times we call it, nowadays we call it the Temple Mount, right? Because it's the highest spot in the area. In fact, if you're reading through other parts of Scripture, maybe through the book of Acts, you'll see this like peculiar thing. It'll say, um, uh, it'll say they went down to Egypt, and then it'll say they went down to Rome. And you're like, wait a second, Rome is that way and Egypt's that way right? Well, it's because they didn't use up and down in terms of north and south. They used up and downs in terms of elevation. And so every time they talk about Jerusalem, they'll talk about going up to Jerusalem. And anytime they talk about leaving Jerusalem, they'll talk about going down because you'd literally have to walk down these hills to leave Jerusalem and walk up these hills to get into Jerusalem. And a lot of the Psalms will talk about going up to Jerusalem and lifting your eyes up to Jerusalem. And there are spiritual truths to that, but it's also just like a literal physical, there's a hill out and you gotta look up to see Jerusalem, right? So as they're coming in from Bethany, they're coming in the side where the temple is on that side of the city. And so as they're walking, they're walking towards this place that just the day before Jesus went in and chucked tables around and, and called out the religious leaders and confronted their exploitation of those who were overlooked and oppressed, right? He, he, this is where they're returning to. And they come to, as you walk from Bethany, into Jerusalem, you come to this little, um, like, not even, like a neighborhood, right? We, we met it in verse one. Um, we, we call it Bethpage a lot of times, but if you were Hebrew speaker, you might say something like Bethphage. And it means 
the place of the early fig or the house of the early fig, right? And so Jesus comes to this place of figs and he sees a single fig tree and there's nothing on it. Now here's the other thing. Matthew's a Jew writing to a bunch of Jews and fig trees have an Old Testament symbolism. Almost every single time you read about a fig tree in the Old Testament or even in extra biblical literature or prophecy in Jewish writings, the fig tree is a symbol of something. It's a symbol of a heart posture in a people. That if a, that if a people are represented as fig tree, it, it's, um, an, another verse says it this way. This might be an easy way of describing the, the, what the image that you would think of if you were a Jew in the first century when you saw a fig tree. Um, it says, scripture says, that they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. That, that a fig tree was a symbol, had become a symbol in Jewish writing and, and in the Old Testament of this kind of um, religiousness that looked right and good. They sang the right songs. And if you were a Jew walking up to the temple, it would be lit up and, and there would be songs being sung and prayers being chanted and you would smell the iron smell of blood's lamb and you would see the red rolling down the hill and it would look like this high holy moment But Jesus, walking, looking at this temple mount, sees a fig tree. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, now here's here's the other thing that you need to see in the verse that makes a really big difference. Look at, remember, words matter. Jesus says this in the middle of verse 21 or towards the end of verse 21. He says, but even if you say to this mountain... Did you notice that? Matthew doesn't record Jesus saying, even if you say to a mountain, have you ever met any mountain chuckers? Just people who have enough faith and they just pray mountains into the sea? No, because Jesus is walking into the mount that Jerusalem sits on, the mount that the temple sits on, and he looks at this fig tree, a symbol of outward religiousness, but an empty coldness inside, and he says that if you have faith, you can throw this mountain into the sea. That's what she's saying. If you have faith, now faith is a theologically thick term, but um, in its most simple sense, it just means something like a, a kind of trust that leads to obedience. That faith is more than, than the um, affirmation of words. It's more than just saying things. Faith is a kind of trust that actually changes our posture in the way that we respond to the world and the way that we react based on trusting that the words of Jesus are true. So Jesus says to the religious leaders, I mean, not to the religious leaders, to his disciples, you too can be someone who destroys brokenness and empty religion and and the oppression of, of, of the overlooked and the oppressed if you walk with a kind of faith that changes the way you live. Here's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. It is far easier for us to believe that the problem with this world is out there. But the problem of brokenness and oppression and exploitation is in here. Let me just give you one simple illustration. Um, Do you know the largest entertainment industry in the world right now? Some of you know, you just don't want to say it. It's porn. And it's not even close. The NFL would be, look like rags compared to pornography. I don't think that there's any of us in this room or watching online that would say, 
you know, I mean, maybe you would think something different, but I don't think anybody would stand in here and go, I think pornography is a good industry. I don't think that there's anybody in here or watching online that would say, oh, I think the exploitation of women and children is a great thing. I don't think that there's anybody in here or online that would say, you know what I really love is that the largest slave trade in human history now exists in our world today. But you know why it does? Because the problem isn't out there. The problem's in here. The problem's in us. That we as broken men and women continue to fail. We continue to, to not trust. We continue to not lean into God, not to be obedient to God in a way that changes our life. And so we demand it. We plead for it. We want it. And we, not them, become the pathway by which the oppressed becomes the oppressor. That we become the ones who hold up the systems and the experiences and the paths and the brokenness in our world to oppress the, the, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the broken, the overlooked. You see, it's a really easy excuse for us to say, oh, well, the brokenness in the world is because of them. But Jesus is turning the mirror back to us and saying, you know why the brokenness of the world exists? Because you failed to lean in and trust me. That what it means to be a people of faith is to be a people who trust God in a way that changes the way we act. That we don't just say with our mouth, God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But that we are people who live in a way that bring the kingdom of God to every square foot we walk on. So the question today is not, where's the, where's the thing out there that we need to go knock down and destroy? But what's the thing in you that you've been failing to trust God and lean in and believe the words of God are true and right and good and may cost you and may be uncomfortable and may be painful, but can be a pathway that you can be a part of setting free the broken, oppressed, and enslaved, that you can be a part of breaking down. You see, Second Corinthians tells us this. Second Corinthians tells us that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Peter tells us that we are a kingdom of priests, it is our job and our calling and our purpose in this earth to do the work inside of ourselves so that we can become a pathway to inviting people to come near to Jesus instead of the obstacle that blocks them from it. So what is it for you? What is it that thing in you that God's been calling you to give up and you've been holding on to so tightly? What is it that thing in you that God wants to chuck into the sea, that God wants to flip over in your life so that you too might become a, a minister of reconciliation, a priest who invites image bearers to come near to him?